Once again, it is I, Mr. Lutz, and I am back at it again, this time with an episode of World History Class with Mr. Lutz, focusing on the evolution of Western Europe from approximately 600 to 1450. So sometimes you may have heard this period get called the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, and that kind of makes it seem like the developments from this period just represent a time of stagnation in comparison to other time periods. But I would, and I'm going to argue with that concept, that the developments in this time period are way too complex. They're way too nuanced to oversimplify to a label of just quote-unquote dark or quote-unquote middle, as if it implies that one label is able to define a period of over eight centuries. Like, come on. Uh, If we fail to consider the complexity of this time period, what we end up doing is we just... It it means we fail to properly contextualize and to situate other historical developments into their proper place. And that means that we remove significant developments and we remove individuals who've contributed a lot to future generations. So leaving out history like this is just bad practice and, and simplifying for the sake of convenience is way too familiar in our world now. So why don't you join me in the fight? by giving this episode a listen. So, for the key concept connections in this episode, there's a lot going on in Western Europe from 600 to 1450. So I figured what I'd do is just kind of categorize these developments as best as I can according to the Spice themes, while always acknowledging that it's way too simplistic just to say, like, social developments remain isolated from other themes. Um, And it's kind of just doing the whole simplicity thing that I just argued against moments ago. But if you'd please ignore that, um, I'm going to do my best to mention where there's overlap, and I'll talk about where there's some interplay between the themes as much as I remember to throughout this episode. But, um, you know, rather than reading through and listing all of the different key concepts in terms of describing them all, I think that what I'll do is just give you guys kind of like the numbers that line this up. So maybe it's a good idea to have a pen and paper out just to jot down the ones that we're focusing on so that you can take note as I explain some things here. Um, So it's going to be the theme of like evolution for all of these. Uh, So for political evolution, we're going to focus on key concept 3.2.1. And for economic evolution, it'll be 3.1.1, 3.3.1. For environmental evolution, it'll be 3.3.2. For social, we'll look at 3.1.4 and 3.3.3. Cultural evolution will actually be the same, 3.3.3. And then finally, in my explainer, I'm going to get in-depth with the Crusades, focusing on key concept 3.2.2. So let's just get straight into it. Um, When talking about political evolution, uh, we we start by focusing on a group of the 8th century, um, the Carolingian dynasty, and their ruler known as Charlemagne. And he's going to be leading the group known as the Franks. Uh, His grandfather, Charles Martel, extremely famous even in his own time 
Uh, he had expanded Frankish rule throughout much of modern-day France and even into most of Germany. And it's also Charles Martel who had defeated the Umayyads at the famous Battle of Tours. And it's an event that's significant because a lot of historians think that this is the event that halts the expansion of Islam into Western Europe. Um, but his grandson, Charlemagne, that's who we're really focusing on, he's going to be known for establishing a strong imperial style of rule after the collapse of the Roman Empire. And after that period, you know, we saw this disintegration of European unity into tiny kingdoms. So his empire is going to expand to even a larger size of the Byzantines by 800 CE. And it's really going to be a lot more centralized than the tradition had been since about 476 CE. So this strong imperial rule is going to be a characteristic of Charlemagne's rule. And it's due to a couple of reasons. Um, for instance, he's constantly on the move in his empire, traveling into localities on a frequent basis, keeping tabs on his local nobles by doing so. He does not have a strong centralized bureaucracy. So Charlemagne is going to appoint local, um, his own officials, excuse me, to ensure that the landowners who are also known as counts, are going to be governing fairly. Um, major event in his time is going to be when Pope Leo III places the crown on his head and calls him the Roman Emperor. So once again, we actually have a Western Roman Emperor for the first time since 476. And, you know, don't forget the Byzantines over in the East still consider themselves, the, their leaders, that is, to be the Roman Emperors. So that's not going to really help relations between East and West in terms of European diplomatic connections there. Uh, but eventually, upon the death of Charlemagne, his empire is going to be split into three between his grandsons. And as a result, there's going to be a lack of strong centralized rule. And this is going to lead to the development of feudalism and manorialism throughout much of Western Europe. And the system that had begun in the Frankish Empire by Charlemagne is going to expand throughout Europe, not only as a result of political disunity, but it's also going to be due to frequent invasions from, name it, they're there. The Vikings are in the north, the Magyars are in eastern and southern Europe, uh, the Muslims are in Spain, in North Africa. So kind of from all sides here, the Europeans are really dealing with foreign threats, and so they're trying to create some stability from that. And this is where we get feudalism and manorialism from. So let's differentiate those two things. Uh, feudalism, for starters, is going to be the system of allegiances that's going to exist between the lords, who are the superiors, and their vassals, who would be their inferiors. So the lords are going to grant the vassals land, which is known as a fief. And in exchange, the vassals will provide services and loyalty to their lords. Uh, a simplified version of this would place the kings at the top, followed by the lords and the bishops, and then the knights, and finally at the bottom would be the peasants, who by and large at this time are going to be considered serfs. And so the difference between serf and peasant is that the word peasant is going to describe any type of agricultural laborer in general throughout history, whereas peasants, excuse me, whereas serfs are peasants who could not leave the land on which they were born. Now, they're not slaves because they're not property of their lord. They can't be bought and sold, but their rights are limited in the sense that they are bound to the land. So that's, that's kind of the gist of feudalism. Manorialism 
Um, instead of focusing on the relationship between lord and vassal, manorialism relates to the relationship between lord and serfs. And so this is kind of your economic system. Serfs are going to be given small plots of land, um, some housing there, and protection from outside invaders by their lords. And in exchange, serfs will work the lord's land. They're going to take care of his animals and help to manage the estate. So they're essentially working the land for the lord and providing the bounty of the land to their lord. Um, so these systems, what they are going to do well is they are going to provide stability and security, but they're also going to leave a lot to be desired. Um, the power of the Catholic Church never really diminished the way that official political authority had in the wake of Rome's collapse. So as a result, the church and the state are going to engage in disputes regarding realms of authority throughout Europe. Case in point with this would be with something called the investor, investiture contest. Uh, so what was argued over in the investiture contest was who has the authority to appoint clergy members to their positions? And prior to Pope Gregory VII's reign, officials of the state, so kings, princes, would have had this right. But Gregory VII, the pope, is going to revoke the right of rulers to appoint the clergy members and one of the, the later emperors of the Frankish kingdom, Henry IV, is going to protest him, and he's going to try to appoint clergy, and as a result, what's going to happen is the pope is going to excommunicate him, meaning kick him out from the Catholic Church, and basically tell um, his citizens that they don't really have to listen to their emperor anymore. So that gives a lot of problems. To Henry because now he's got his subjects who don't really feel obligated to listen to him. So he's eventually going to regain his power, but this kind of clearly establishes where the domains of the church lie and where the domains of the state lie for now. That will change, but not till the next time period for us. Um, there's going to be some restrictions also placed on the authority of kings in some places. For instance, we'll see this with the Magna Carta um, of England in 1215 when King John has to sign away his ability to tax his people at will and abuse his rights at will. Um, some basic rights are established for the common people and privileges for the class of barons or the lords of England, are, their privileges will be maintained as a result of that Magna Carta. So that kind of covers some of the general political trends. In terms of economic evolution here, um, Western Europe's economy is going to be significantly transformed from the days of the so-called Dark Ages into what is becoming, by the end of this period, a rapidly integrated and expanding system in a couple different ways. And so how that goes on happening is there's a couple of developments that promote this change and this transformation. The first one centers on developments in agricultural techniques. Uh, one thing is known as the three-field system. Basically, what this is, is it's a system that allows for nutrients to be replenished in one of three fields because that field is going to be uncultivated for one growing season while the other two are being used for that season. And this is going to allow for more productivity because the land has a chance to recover. It's not being used year in and year out, and all those nutrients are just being sapped of the soil, out of the soil. Uh, so that's one thing agriculturally. There's another, uh, there's an invention at this time called the moldboard plow, and this plow has iron edges, edges on it. 
Uh, it's pulled by collared horses. And so what this means is that farmers are able to cut through and turn the soil over at a much more easy and much more efficient rate. They're able to plow new lands. They're able to plow difficult lands. So they're able to grow more food ultimately. So this growth in food production really allows for urban areas to rise again because the food supply is going up. So as a result, commercial life is going to begin to grow in these places. Uh, the city-states of Italy and the towns of the Low Countries, which would be modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands, are going to really start to grow in importance, especially after the Crusades, as Europeans begin to demand more and more goods from Asia. And these city-states also, in their own right, begin to emerge as centers of cloth, particularly wool um, production during this time. And one of the most powerful city-states in this time, Venice, they become so entangled in Mediterranean trade that they're going to be able to establish these trade enclaves all throughout the Mediterranean region in cities ranging from Constantinople to Alexandria and Cairo in Egypt and Damascus and the Levant and the Black Sea port of Kaffa, which interestingly enough is going to be where the plague is going to spread from. Uh, meanwhile, in Northern Europe, you're going to see the emergence of what's known as the Hanseatic League. And what this is going to do is it's going to be a state-sponsored trade organization that's going to link the economies of places in modern-day Scandinavia, Poland, Denmark, Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands. And so when we see all this trade really starting to emerge here, we're going to see some things that are going to help facilitate trade. One of those is going to be the development of credit. And what that means in this time period is that merchants could obtain a letter of credit declaring how much they have in one place. So you could get this letter of credit in Venice and take this letter with you to a distant market, maybe Constantinople. And at that place, that letter of credit could be exchanged for hard currency. And so what we're going to see is that the Jews, due to their diaspora communities throughout Eurasia, they're having been banned from engaging in particular professions, and Christianity having conflicts with money lending between people of the same religion, the Jews are going to often become the money lenders and the merchants during this time. And not only in terms of trade, we're going to see developments, but also in terms of manufacturing we're going to see developments in the emergence of guilds. And guilds are going to allow both traders and craftspeople to be able to organize it. And this organization gives them the purpose of standardizing production, standardizing um, the prices of the things they'll sell, how much they'll supply in the market. And these guilds also provide a social network for their members, uh, also social services for their members, building large social halls where they'll throw all sorts of parties and whatnot. They'll provide some financial support for families who have a deceased member of the guild and just general aid in times of trouble for the members themselves. But with all that being said, that's great about the guilds. One kind of drawback from them is that regulating these industries so heavily is going to lead to the discouragement of innovation and competition. So, you know, long story short, with this rise in food production, what we start to see as a result is increased trade, increased urban life, increased interactions, and all the different types of benefit economically, socially, even politically down the road that are going to come from that. So environmentally speaking, uh, the big theme of this period is 
worldwide, or at least in Afro-Eurasia, the rise and demise, or demise and rise, depending on who we're talking about here, of towns and cities. And as the Roman Empire collapses um, in the tail end of period two, so do the urban centers of their empire. So that's going to be primarily in Western Europe. And so earlier on in period three, there's not going to be too much or enough of an agricultural surplus to sustain these urban populations. But as we talked about those previously mentioned agricultural developments, you start to see food production on the rise. Therefore, you start to see towns and cities on the rise. And so as cities become more complex and the society becomes more complex due to this agricultural surplus, there's going to start to be a demand for educated individuals because it's demanding more complex tasks to be addressed. So gradually, you're going to start to see literacy rates begin to grow in the towns and cities of Western Europe. And this is going to be primarily driven by cathedral schools who are bringing the best and brightest in throughout their regions to educate their students. And you're going to see schools uh, eventually begin to transform into the first European universities. Um, Bologna, Paris will be some of the earliest. Later on, other schools like Oxford and Cambridge start to emerge as well. And this development, you know, we're talking environment, but it kind of naturally transitions itself into how this environment, that is the growth of cities, translates into cultural evolution at this time. So to rewind a bit, when we immediately follow up with the collapse of Rome, we're going to see the church maintaining its authority. And this is going to be because it has a status as really the only organization that maintains consistent stability after Rome's fall. And so there's going to be lots of Christians who desire to live an especially devout lifestyle. They're, they're, they're struggling to see what meaning there is or what value there is. It's not fair to say that so simplistically, but they believe there's a lot more to be invested in for the afterlife. That's a better way of saying it. Um, and so these Christians who want to live this devout lifestyle are going to adopt a monastic way of life meaning they dedicate themselves to their religion by going unmarried, living a life of material simplicity, focusing on prayer, the study of their faith, helping to spread and administer their religion, serve their communities. Uh, so you'll see in these monastic communities, both monks and nuns, often providing spiritual guidance for their co-religionists. Um, this could be offering food and medicine uh, when a community is in crisis. It could be just helping to provide shelter. Uh, it could range from a lot of different things. And in this early period as well, you see a lot of the, the brightest thinkers trying to unite the concepts of faith and of reason. Uh, for instance, you'll have St. Thomas Aquinas during this time, who's going to really work to bring together the scientific and philosophical understandings of a Greek thinker like Aristotle and merge that with the spiritual and the faith-driven beliefs of Christianity and he's going to be followed uh, not only by other Christian thinkers, but we'll also see this, or I suppose actually, folks, we have already seen this in earlier episodes with some of the major Islamic scholars that we talked about. The first one coming to mind for me is going to be Ibn Rushd. Uh, but beyond academics, religion is found as a central focus of life during this time. Christian art, literature is going to serve to reveal the power and the glory of God, doesn't concern itself with 
depicting the factual accuracies of everyday life as I'm saying this to you, you'll want to do yourself a favor. Uh, I'm, I'm coming in early here on the recommendations, but I, I just, I got to share, I got to share this with you. I just saw this video this past week and it's perfect to bring up right now. It just came to mind for me. Um, on YouTube, there is a video company, a news company called Vox, V-O-X, uh, and they produced a video and it is, quote, why babies in medieval paintings look like ugly old men, end quote. And they hit it spot on, nail it in terms of <laughs> in terms of why do babies in medieval paintings look like ugly old men? Um, no, but seriously, it, it, it illustrates the point that I'm trying to make to you here, which is that these paintings focus on religion. It is not about trying to capture the human form as accurately as possible. And there is a religious reason why they do make the babies look like old men. I'm not going to get into it. I think that that's really important. It's probably the most important thing you're going to do today is go to YouTube and watch this video. So just trust me on that. And I think you'll be glad you did. Um, so yeah, anyway, besides for literature, besides for art, the architecture of this time period is also going to really work to, you guessed it, convey the power of God and of Christianity. So we're talking here with Gothic architecture. And you'll see this most often in the cathedrals of the period with the ceilings that shoot high into the sky, kind of connecting people to God as much as they can there, um, leaving people into a general state of awe and inspiration and humility, whether that's with the intricate designs on the interior or the exterior, the way the light shines through, the stained glass windows in the cathedrals, just really creating that sense of making the individual feel small and tremble, for lack of a better term, in awe of God. So yeah, there you have it. I'll look at some of the different changes and continuities. I, I hope you've seen mostly changes, albeit maybe slightly gradual, throughout this time period. And you know, no one really calls it the Dark Ages anymore. I should say very few people consider this period to be the Dark Ages. But that term, the Middle Ages, also bothers me because it does kind of imply this just period of general stagnation. It's just like, just wait until the Renaissance, then it gets awesome. But there's a lot going on in this time period, and I think it's worth trying to wrap our heads around what are those changes that start to occur throughout this 600 to 1450 period. <laughs> So for today's zooming in feature, uh, one thing I conveniently and very purposefully left out was the Crusades. So I'd like to kind of give that some attention here for just a couple of minutes, not too long. Um, what we're going to focus on in class is going to be the causes and some of the immediate results of the Crusades. So I wanted to reserve the time that I spend with you here by talking about some of the long-term effects on the Crusades. And like I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, this information is best going to align with key concept 3.2.2.A. So many points. Anyway, um, in comparison to Europe, I'm going to start by saying that in comparison to Europe, there's not going to be as much long-term impact for the Middle East as a result of the Crusades. However, Western Europe is going to experience some long-term changes due to their travels into the Holy Lands. 
um, at this time, relatively speaking, the Muslims are going to be economically and culturally more advanced than our Western European counterparts. And remember, they're only really starting to come out of their relative isolation with the greater reaches of Africa or Asia. Before the Crusades, we had seen some of those Italian city-states start to venture into the Mediterranean and expand their horizons. We see some trade, especially in things like wool and especially textiles from Western Europe going southwards and eastwards, but not too much. Um, after the Crusades, what you start to see is, for, for one thing, European scholars are getting their hands more often on the works of Aristotle, uh, the Islamic scientists and mathematicians. They're getting their hands on the works of medical thinkers and theorists. And they're also understanding a whole new numerical system. We today call the Arabic numeral system, but it actually should be properly attributed to the people of South Asia. Uh, it makes its way into Western Europe at this time. And Europeans are also going to become more fond of luxury goods from Asia. And so as a result, more Italian merchants are going to begin to involve themselves in the so-called Holy Lands where they can get those gems, the glassware, the silk, the fruits, the spices that Europeans are now demanding so much. And there's a lot more to be said about what Europe transforms into that is kickstarted by the Crusades. I won't say that it's as a result of the Crusades. There's a lot of factors that come into play that are going to lead to the Renaissance and later the Reformation in Western Europe. But I think the Crusades play a major role in introducing a lot of Europeans to some larger trends happening outside of their particular region of the world. So for the explainer in this episode, I just want you guys to try to start to think of an organizational focus for yourselves and for your mindset as you start to view these chapters. Because um, it's kind of what I've been doing as I've been continuing on with these podcast notes more and more. And as I first flipped through the chapter and kind of started thinking about what I wanted to do, the immediate pattern that I saw and that I think I brought to life here in this episode is the theme of change and continuity over time. And like I said earlier, there's a lot that happens in Western Europe from the 7th through the 15th century and it's it's a really smart thing to do is to set yourself up thematically with one of the thinking skills or one of the writing skills, I guess I should say. So for this one, it's changing continuity over time. I think for the next chapter to preview, we're going to learn about the Aztecs and the Incas. So to a certain extent, one of the smarter things we can do there is think of compare and contrast. What's similar between these two? What's different between these two? And also, don't forget the analysis, the why part. So if we're talking in this chapter about change and about continuity over time, you know, for instance, one of the reasons that change starts to happen, think back earlier in the episode, I would argue one of the major things that leads to a lot of the changes is going to be thanks to the shift in agricultural production. The improvement in the techniques, whether it's the three field system or the use of the moldboard plow or whatever the other things you want to mention agriculturally, it leads to more of an agricultural surplus, which leads to the development of towns and yada, yada, yada. A lot of things are going on. In terms of the continuities throughout this time period, you can talk about 
the continual power of the Catholic Church and the influence it holds over society. So when we go back to um, the investiture problem, we see the Catholic Church still holds sway over the political leaders of Europe. That's not to say they're involving themselves in everything, but you still see this trend of, at the end of the day, political sources of authority are still subservient to the Catholic Church. And I think that's so important for you to do, because if you can not only identify what's changing, what's staying the same, but also analytically why those things are happening, you will do yourself such a favor when we hit the end of the year, and those skills will become absolutely second nature to you. All right, so for my recommendation today, it honestly could be one of the more difficult ones you're ever going to hear from me. Make sure you're taking time for yourself. Um, you're hitting the time of year. I know how this course goes, and this is where things start to pick up. And so if I'm telling you right now to make time for yourself, you might be like, is this guy crazy? How am I going to find the time to do that? Um, you have to. And the same thing goes for me. We can sit here all day and, and exhaust ourselves with all this work and all these things we have to do, but find some time to get outside, find some time to just talk with your family, find some time to just do something that you enjoy doing because the mental benefits of it are just so good for you. And also the mental break from the grind of schoolwork, whether it's AP world or it's any other class you're taking to step away from it for a little while, do something that you love and then come back into it. It just makes you so much better off. And I can remember as I'm saying this to you, saying this to my kids last year, and they just thought I was crazy. Like, where would they ever find the time to do that? As your teacher, if you're listening to this and you're one of my students, I will make those times for you as much as I can. But at the same time, make them for yourselves too. It's a super important thing for you to do. So yeah, I'll get off my high horse there. And uh, I'm going to go enjoy the rest of my Saturday evening. As I say, make some time for yourself. And I'm recording this at 820 on a Saturday night. Anyway, take care of yourself. I'm here for you. Hope all is well. And I'll talk to you soon.